A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I can't tell you, like, how many times I've heard therapists or, or parents say, oh, he's not motivated by anything. Nothing motivates him. And, you know, kids can't be unmotivated. We're always motivated by something. But if a kid isn't motivated to sit at the table to do your therapy activity, maybe he's very motivated to stand up and try to walk out the door, right? So it's not that there's no motivation. It's just where is their motivation? So I think that a lot of the time we put the onus on the child, like, oh, well, you're not motivated. This is a you problem. But really, we could be doing something differently. For example, you have your kids and you have to get them to brush their teeth, right? It's so easy to make that a battle. No, brush your teeth right now. If you don't brush your teeth, you're not going to be able to do your iPad tomorrow. And right, it turns into like a you have to hang, like threaten them in a sense or try to get them to do it. And then you're like, well, he just doesn't like brushing his teeth. Okay, so in our house, we have Elliot, the imaginary dragon, and we brush his teeth, you know? So then we take the kids into the bathroom. We go, okay, Elliot, come on. And we pull his head down as hard as we can, and we open his mouth, and we brush his teeth. And then it's like, now it's fun. So I think it's just, for a lot of us, it's just taking a breath and letting go of the idea that us, the adult, has to be the one in charge all the time and, you know, balancing out the playing field a little bit more. It's not, oh, I'm so much better and more important than you and I'm hanging this over your head and you have to meet this condition I set for you. It's how can we make this enjoyable for both of us? And it really is enjoyable for both the parent and the child when you can do stuff like that. Yeah, it's fun. Yeah, and I always say, like, if it's fun, if you're having fun, your child is likely also having fun. Then I think one of the biggest, I don't know if I would say, like, mistakes people make, but I think a lot of the times when you're creating something new, you tend to look at the other people around you in your space and try to see, like, what are they doing? But I think the most success I've always had is when I completely ignore anyone else who's relatively in my space and I look at people who are successful in other fields and try to figure out what are they doing and how can we do this in our field? You know, because otherwise it tends to be like a lot of the same thing. And this is going to sound cheesy. This is from... um What was the movie King Richard about Venus and Serena? Williams and they said to Serena when she was young I think how how do you expect to win you know there's so much competition and she's like I like literally don't like I I don't remember word for word what she said but the sentiment was like I don't care at all like I'm not watching them I'm in my own lane here you know so it's kind of that mentality of like I think when when you look around and you compare yourself to other people it almost just like distracts you 
and takes you away. But when you are like laser focused on knowing what your goals are and what you want to do, it helps, you know? And for me, I've always said, I want to have a, a bigger impact. It's like, I can only help so many kids. If I see 30 kids a week, what, what if instead I helped 30 therapists a week who helped 30 kids a week? You know, and for us, it's always been more about like the creating the ripple in the pond and trying to have a bigger influence by doing the same amount. There are millions of butterflies. If everyone caused the beginnings of a storm, Earth would be in chaos. A butterfly flapped its wings in the Amazon, and subsequently, a storm ravages half of Europe. And how far forward would we need to go in your life to show the difference you make? I cannot quite remember when was the first time I encountered Jesse Ginsberg's work. It was probably as my son worked with a speech and language pathologist, an SLP, to unleash his bilingual superpowers. Jessie Ginsberg is an SLP based out of Los Angeles, California. She is a mom of four and she has her very own SLP play-based and sensory-friendly private practice. Her Instagram account is filled with so much knowledge about how to integrate sensory practices to help kids better regulate while learning. I was hooked. But back then, when I found out about her work, her content and trainings were really geared towards her peers, other SLPs. Basically, when Jessie first started working with autistic kids and other sensory seekers, she learned about sensory processing. But she could not find any training that would teach her and her peers how to integrate that into their work, into their daily life. So Jessie basically signed up to everything she could put her fingers on. Trainings geared towards OTs, PTs and others. And eventually, she felt comfortable enough to create the training that she wanted to sign up for herself. Jessie Ginsburg is interested in creating a ripple effect. Rather than loading her schedule to run from patient to patient all day, she prefers to focus on making a difference among her peers, her community and the parents of her patients to truly impact patients' lives. You probably think, well, she was born to do this, right? Maybe. But did you know that she initially was planning on becoming a winemaker? Well, you'll find out the whole story in the coming conversation. I'm Anne-Florangeli, I'm so glad you're here, and you're listening to L'Effet Papillon. You know a lot about me. That was impressive. Thanks so much for having me. And yes, I am almost 36 weeks pregnant right now. Well, thank you so much for making room for, for, for our call. So on L'Effet Papillon, the butterfly effect in English, I like to get back to the root of things and to discuss the impact of conversations, decisions whatsoever uh, on our own lives, right? Today you are an SLP, but I believe you once upon a time were a pre-med student uh, in college. You wanted to become a doctor. Is that right? Yeah, it's really funny. I don't know. I This probably happens to a lot of people where you look back on your life and realize that It was just one small decision that led to the next, that led to the next. And all of a sudden you're nowhere where you plan to be. But I actually, originally I was going to go into winemaking because that's what my dad does as a hobby. He's an accountant, but he has always made wine. 
And I got into uh, the best winemaking schools in California. But I had a high school boyfriend and he was moving to L.A. And guess who wanted to be near her high school boyfriend? (laughs) So I decided, you know what? I don't want to go into winemaking. I want to go to this random school where I don't know anyone. And that is when I decided I was going to be pre-med. That is quite a shift. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure my parents would be horrified to know that was the real reason I moved and changed my mind. But so I ended up uh, doing pre-med for the first maybe like two or so years of college. And someone had recommended to me a speech therapy class because they are supposed to be really easy classes. And that's what I needed in my life after being in pre-med. And (laughs) I ended up loving it. I heard also that there was a conversation with a professor about chemistry classes. Is that right? Yeah. So I was, I, I really liked the idea of becoming a doctor. I, I loved medicine. I really wanted to go into that field. But the classes were so competitive. You know, it was like you would ask someone if they could help you to answer a homework question and they would say, oh, no, I didn't know how to do that either. And then you see them turn in a completely filled out homework assignment. You know, like no one was there to support each other. And I just couldn't imagine spending all of college and med school in an environment like that. And I don't know if that was just the school, who knows. But I ended up sitting down with my professor who was my advisor And I said, you know, I love this idea. I just, I hate chemistry. It hasn't been fun for me. And she said, well, if you hate chemistry, you're never going to enjoy the rest of school. You're never going to make it through med school. And after that conversation is basically when I dropped, which is crazy because, you know, she did not know me at all. She barely knew me, but had that big of an influence over the trajectory of my career in that 30-minute meeting. From that moment on, uh, how long did it take you to like, um, can you say that? Jump back on the saddle? <laughs> I don't know if you say that. Oh, anymore. yeah, jump back I in mean, the saddle. Like, how hard was it for you to come to terms with that uh, project um, and to find your new true coding, uh, something that would really like excite you to get out of bed too and uh, um, to to study, to, to build your career? Yeah, I think it still took a while. You know, I've always also always been a motivated person and that I love learning. But I went in to take my first, it's called communicative disorders. That was the major for speech. And I took that first class and I wasn't sold. It was interesting, but I wasn't like just immediately sold on the profession. It it really wasn't until I started doing an internship in the clinic on campus where I had that moment where I knew this was something I wanted to pursue. I had this boy who was assigned to me. I was supposed to work with him. He was eight years old and he had facial paralysis. So he could speak, but he really couldn't move his cheeks, his lips to communicate clearly. You know, he'd gone his whole life without really being understood when he was trying to talk. So he had just undergone this surgery called facial reanimation, where they take a muscle from your leg and they implant it into your cheek. And then my job was to teach him how to use that muscle. 
And it was just like the most motivated kid I'd ever seen in my life. I couldn't believe he was eight years old and he wanted so desperately to be able to speak clearly. And he was, he would go and he would do all of his homework, anything I gave him to practice. And that was really like my turning point, I would say. So you became an SLP after, right? That was an internship as you were still a student, a grad student. Yeah. So I graduated and then I was an SLP assistant for a year because I still didn't know. I wasn't like a hundred percent. I'm going to go into this field. I got, I had to feel it out first. So after I started working in the field, then I ultimately went back, applied for grad school, and then went back to grad school the next year, which is depending on what kind of school you go to. It's either like a two or three year program. Mine was two. And then, yeah, I was, I was definitely sold by the end of, by, by starting grad school. Okay. That's so interesting. So We have um, listeners tuning in from France, and I'm pretty sure most people even here in the U.S. Uh, who have not needed to consult uh, with an SLP are not quite sure what an SLP does. Could you explain what it means and like what you do on the, uh, on the day-to-day? Yeah, I think the reason people probably don't understand is because the scope of practice is so wide. So I can kind of give you a general scope of what an SLP can do and then maybe more specifically what I do. But, you know, speech language pathologists essentially work on communication and swallowing and cognitive skills. So you could work on feeding babies in the NICU or you could work on swallowing with people after they've had a stroke or you could work on helping people regain skills after traumatic brain injury. Um, and then there's the more the side which more people know about, which is helping kids develop language or correct speech sounds. And that could be done in a clinic, in home, in the schools. So it's a very, very um, wide field. I spent about a year working with adults doing like the traumatic brain injury and and post-stroke and all of that stuff. And then ultimately, I just, I loved working with kids. And when I started my practice, I was, prim I've been primarily working with kids, like I would say zero to five, zero to eight for the last 10 years. And so you specialize in working with autistic kiddos, right? I don't know how it works, right? As a clinician, like how do you make that um, uh, your specialty? A great question, because a lot of people never decide to kind of niche down. You know, um, there are plenty of therapists who are more generalists and maybe they work in a school and they have to be able to help all different kinds of kids in that school. And I think one of the benefits of private practice is that we could get really good at like one or two or three things and put all of our energy into that. Because when I started my private practice, it was like this scarcity mindset. How am I going to pay my rent? How am I going to get clients? I better accept everyone, you know? So I was accepting like kids who stutter, which I had minimal experience in and kids who needed help with all different speech sounds. And I was just saying yes to everyone. And then I was killing myself by researching how to help them because obviously I wasn't going to take a client in. I didn't know how to help. So then it was like, I was helping so many different types of kids and ending up spending so much time trying to figure out what I was doing. And it kind of like dawned on me. Oh my gosh, what is that book called? It's the, 
idea of why it's so great to be a specialist is it's like that idea of, well, if you were going to go to, if you had a brain tumor, would you go to a general practitioner or would you go to a neurologist? You know, so I think it was like a business related book I'd read. And I just realized that narrowing down my scope of practice would actually bring me more clients, not less. You know, people would start to know me for being really good at something specific and ultimately would bring me more clients in the end of the day, which is a really hard mindset shift to make, I think, when you're a business owner. I bet. Yeah, it's pretty counterintuitive, as you're saying, that you're going to uh, get more uh, influx of uh, patients, of clients, rather than the other way around. Yeah. And, you know, I had been trained in working with autistic kids in my very first job when I was an assistant. I had this extensive training. I had these incredible supervisors. And that was when I really jumped in. So this very specific type of therapy for autistic kids. It's a play-based therapy called Floor Time. And Floor Time was created by Dr. Stanley Greenspan. And I was trained in that approach by one of his mentees. And then he passed away. And I ended up becoming close with his son who runs the Floor Time Center in Maryland. And we started presenting together as well. So I had really just kind of gone deep into the autism world pretty early on. And then I realized like, why am I so hesitant? Like, why am I, gosh, what's the word? Pregnancy brain. It's killing me. <laughs> I was like, I'm, I'm fighting it. You know, people ask me about this. People ask me to speak on this topic. Why am I not just like falling, leaning in instead of resisting? Is that how you made, you, you've made a multiple switches, right? Uh, so you were an SLP and now you are, uh, as you, uh, as your Instagram handle says, a sensory SLP. Um, do you remember how you became aware of the need of uh, making this switch in methodology and approach uh, of autistic kiddos? Yeah. So I wrote an article for our national magazine called the ASHA Leader, American Speech Language Hearing Association. And it was about my approach, which felt really different. It wasn't, let's make kids sit at a table and work for five tokens. And once they do, they get a break. Like it was the complete opposite. It was, how can we bring our kids into our session and get them regulated and get them engaged and make sure we're doing things that are motivating for them? And then the language development comes naturally. Like that's the, the hard part is the regulation, engagement, motivation. It's like once we can get those things, our job becomes so much easier because kids are naturally in a state where they are going to be learning if they're regulated and engaged. So I wrote this article and I was terrified because it was like me putting my heart out on the line. I'd written for this magazine before on other topics you have your email address, you know, at the bottom of the article, I'd never had anyone reach out to me before after I'd written an article. But this time it published and I was just getting emails nonstop from therapists all over saying, I love this approach. I always believe this. I didn't know there was anyone else out there who felt this way. Do you have more resources? What trainings can I take? 
And that's when I realized that there was a huge need for trainings. It was not that people didn't believe in that approach. It's just they didn't know how to do it. Talking about training, um, I, I believe when you decided to train uh, yourself, uh, all you could find was like sensory uh, focused trainings for OT, occupational therapists. Oh, yeah. Uh, but there was nothing for SLP back then? It just wasn't something SLPs were taught. And you can't, I try not to blame the system because look at how broad the scope is. How could we possibly learn everything we need to learn in grad school, you know, um, considering how many people were supposed to be able to help. So I started just doing all of these other trainings, but it's like I wasn't getting continuing ed for them because they, were, they weren't for SLPs. And one of the trainings I ultimately decided to do was my certificate in sensory integration, which was through University of Southern California. And that's really a post-grad level program for occupational therapists, but they let a few other mm -hmm. professionals in each class. That was like, I don't know, a year and a half of classes or something. It was basically like going back to grad school, that level of mm -hmm. work. I didn't realize that when I signed <laughs> up for it. I think I was pregnant um, <laughs> most of it. Anyway, it was just one of those things where it was amazing. It's just that there was such a, like, there were little things I was pulling here and there that I knew would help me because I'm not working on handwriting. I'm not working on gross motor skills. Like that does fall into the scope of what an occupational therapist does. So that's what led me ultimately to creating my own program was that there just wasn't anything out there to help other speech therapists. There was nothing out there that focused on why is regulation so important for communication and how can we use strategies to support language development. That's so interesting. When was it that you started that uh, training for SLPs? It was... I think it was about a year maybe before the pandemic when I started doing a lot more training, but I've really like narrowed down to sensory specifically. I think that was closer to after the pandemic or right when the pandemic hit, actually, I really impulsively, you know, all the therapists were so worried. They didn't know how they were going to do teletherapy for autistic kids. They were like, this is going to be so hard. So I went into a Facebook group and I said, if I go live tomorrow and talk about how to do teletherapy for autistic kids, is that something that would help you guys? And I had like no following at this time. Okay. It wasn't like I was a expert in the field coming in offering to do a free training. I was just like some random therapist offering to do it. And all of these people said, yes, 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 I need that. And then that um, is essentially what started my audience was those people who were looking for those resources. That's awesome. Can you maybe describe um, how meeting the sensory needs can uh, affect regulation and maybe what kind of sensory regulation we're talking about? Um, I'm, I'm just thinking that me, when I first uh, uh, discovered the autistic world, like there is so much that you don't know. And even if you're reading a lot, it really depends on some of the resources that you may stumble upon. Um, could you just like maybe give a, a little bit of an overview? Yeah, of course. A really easy analogy is from the book called The Whole Brain Child, where they essentially talk about how the brain has like the downstairs brain and the upstairs brain. And the downstairs brain is what is in charge of our, you know, survival instincts, and it's our automatic reflexive actions. And 
It's the upstairs brain that's responsible for language and logic and problem solving and planning and all of our executive functioning. The problem is that when we're dysregulated, in the book they say this, it's like there's a baby gate that just shuts between the downstairs brain and the upstairs brain. It's like we can't even get up there to access that language and that thinking, those thinking skills that we have. And I actually started teaching this before I even knew it was researched (laughs) because it was what I was seeing in my sessions. I always um, share a staircase analogy with parents where I say, you know, the bottom of the staircase is regulation and engagement. And then you've got language in the middle and higher level cognitive skills at the top. And if we don't strengthen those bottom steps, we're never going to have a stable staircase. So it's this idea that so often in our therapy, especially with autistic kids who have sensory differences, they're taking the world in differently, which means that they're going to be more likely to get dysregulated in places where other kids wouldn't. We need to be able to help them regulate so they can climb that staircase. Otherwise, we just get stuck in the therapy of having a kid sit down and teaching them, I want car, I want juice, I want milk. You know, when our goal is not I want milk. Our goal is to get them to say, we're out of milk. Can we go to the grocery store later if they're open? Because I really want to get some more. You know, and I think a lot of times our therapy is so short-sighted where we're only thinking about like, how can I get the next word out of this kid? Or how can I get him to say a sentence? We're not thinking about the fact that the type of language we're trying to get them to build only comes from being able to build so many more skills than just saying a word, you know. How do you go about regulating them and uh, what kind of sensory approaches? I know that we could go on for hours and hours because this is your, your field of expertise. But if we could spread some basic knowledge, some common knowledge for everybody to understand what we're talking about here. At the most basic level, you think about what does a child need to regulate? Like what kind of things feel really good to them and help them feel regulated versus what kind of things are dysregulating to them? And that's a really good place to start because a lot of times we're not even thinking about that until after the fact. Like maybe we know, and when I talk about sensory regulation, I'm talking about, you know, how they are interpreting and experiencing all of the senses in their body and, you know, visual system and the sounds around them and the touch around them and how they're moving around, all of that. But what happens so often is we know kids are sensitive to something. Like maybe we know they're sensitive to loud noises, but we put them in a classroom with kids screaming unpredictably for eight hours. No wonder they're going to have a meltdown at the end of the day. You know, so I think like knowing what those triggers are for kids and knowing what those types of input that cause them to get dysregulated are can go such a long way because it can help us be a lot more proactive with how we are setting up their day rather than reactive. And then, of course, along with that is knowing the things that are regulating to them. You know, when they need to calm down, what what's calming for them? Is it swinging? Is it tapping their foot? Is it getting a hug? Is it listening to soft music? Is it going into a quiet room? You know, what's something that's going to calm them? And then the reverse as well. Like when they are feeling really 
low, like they need more energy, what are things that they enjoy to do to get more of that, more energy? So kind of knowing what they, what's regulating to them versus what's dysregulating to them is a really good place to start. So it's things that you incorporate in your sessions. So like uh, at your clinic, you have like swings, like you have equipment that you would expect even to find maybe at an OT? Yeah, absolutely. Except I will say that I think it's also a misconception that you need this equipment in order to do this kind of therapy. I mean, we have one gym and a a bunch of therapists. So of course, not everyone is going to be in the gym every single session, but it could be as simple as, you know, a child comes in and seems really dysregulated when they come in. And instead of singing the hello song and jumping and screaming and clapping and loud and tickling them. We're singing the hello song while we're giving them deep squeezes and we're singing really softly or we're giving them like a big hug and rocking them because we're trying to get their body regulated in order to, you know, start the session. I learned also through you that uh, rewarding wanted behavior is a big no-no. Could you explain? Yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> you know, this is really along the lines of when kids learn, they have to be intrinsically motivated. Like that's the way it's going to stick is it has to come from within. It has to be that inherent satisfaction they get from engaging in the activity. And a lot of systems, including most school systems, are set up on the idea of external rewards. Do this and you get this. Do this, then you get a break. Do this, then you get five stars, and then you get to choose a toy. Stuff like that. And what we know about external rewards is that external rewards might get a child to do something, but it's going to actually decrease their motivation to do that over time. So the more we reward someone for doing something, the less likely they are to want to do it in the future. And this is research, great research by Alfie Cohn, who wrote the book Punished by Rewards. This pregnancy brain is seriously ruining me because I'm forgetting Dan. I quote him (laughs) all the time. And now, of course, the last name is not coming to me. Um, great TED Talk. I'll think of it. Okay. If you find it, I can add it to the to the description yeah. of the episode. Don't worry about it. But it's this idea that like a lot of times we bring a, a child into a session and then we have them like work, quote, work for something or, you know, get rewarded for doing the activity, but they're going to be less likely to want to do it in the future if we're rewarding them for doing it. It makes way more sense for us to do something that's just going to be motivating and fun for them that they want to do that we don't have to dangle the carrot in order to get them to do. And so how do you go about building that intrinsic uh, motivation? I think a lot of it comes down to how we approach our sessions, you know, and it's, I can't tell you like how many times I've heard therapists or, or parents say, oh, he's not motivated by anything. Nothing motivates him. And, you know, kids can't be unmotivated. We're always motivated by something. But if a kid isn't motivated to sit at the table to do your therapy activity, maybe he's very motivated to stand up and try to walk out the door, right? So it's not that there's no motivation. It's just where is their motivation? So I think that a lot of the time we put the onus on the child like, oh, well, you're not motivated. This is a you problem. But really, we could be doing something differently. For example, 
you have your kids and you have to get them to brush their teeth, right? It's so easy to make that a battle. No, brush your teeth right now. If you don't brush your teeth, you're not going to be able to do your iPad tomorrow. And right, it turns into like a, you have to hang, like threaten them in a sense or try to get them to do it. And then you're like, well, he just doesn't like brushing his teeth. Okay, so in our house, we have Elliot, the imaginary dragon, and we brush his teeth, you know? So then we take the kids into the bathroom. We go, okay, Elliot, come on. And we pull his head down as hard as we can and we open his mouth and we brush his teeth. And then it's like, now it's fun. So I think it's just for a lot of us, it's just taking a breath and letting go of the idea that us, the adult has to be the one in charge all the time and, you know, balancing out the playing field a little bit more. It's not oh, I'm so much better and more important than you and I'm hanging this over your head and you have to meet this condition I set for you. It's how can we make this enjoyable for both of us? And it really is enjoyable for both the parent and the child when you can do stuff like that. Yeah, it's fun. Yeah, and I always say, like, if it's fun, if you're having fun, your child is likely also having fun. You refer to um, kids who are sensory seekers and sensory avoiders. How do you go about working with both, right? Um, I mean, they have sensory needs. We all do have sensory needs, whether we're autistic or not. Uh, how do you detect uh, under which, I don't know how you would say, persona they fall under? Uh, and how do you work with all of them? Yeah, and that's actually the two most known of four. So there's actually four ah, different okay. patterns, which it's it gets very confusing. But essentially what you're looking at is, does the child need just a little bit of sensory input in order to feel it? Or do they need a lot? And that's kind of step one is to figure out, do they need a little, little or a lot? Because a child who's an avoider only needs a little bit. And then they start to feel anxious, start to feel like this is too much. I need to get out of here. I don't like it. Versus a seeker is a child who, like you think, has a big sensory cup. They need a lot to fill it up. So they need that constant movement or constant stimulation. So knowing if they need a little bit or a lot helps tremendously because it can help you not only, you know, use strategies to get them what they need, but it can also help you set up the environment so that it's not too overstimulating for them or so that it's stimulating enough for them. You know, like avoiders might need to take more breaks to be in a calm place versus seekers might need to take more movement breaks. And the other, um, Thing that we look at when we are trying to kind of figure out what category kids fall under is a little more complicated, but it's, do they regulate actively or passively? So the way I describe this is me and my partner, Chris, because we're opposites here, we'll both be sitting on the couch. We will both feel hungry. He will be up on his feet saying, okay, I'm going to go to the store. I'm going to cook. I'm going to, what do you want to eat? And it's like immediately he is going to go fill that need. So that's very active regulation style. Me, I will sit on the couch for three more hours watching Real Housewives. And then I'm like in such a bad mood. I know I'm still hungry, but I'm just not doing anything about it yet. You know, so for some kids, 
they are really active and like they either know what they love or they know what they don't like and they immediately go toward it or try to get away from it. But then we have these other kids who are more passive and we might not notice the dysregulation building. So for them, we have to be a lot more proactive in trying to help them because they're not always going to show us signs of um, doing what they need to do in order to regulate. I want to get back to um, the trainings, right? Uh, What you have followed and what you created from that. Um, So you spent a lot of time, mental bandwidth, while being pregnant, once again, (laughs) and uh, money, right? I mean, it's a a lot of money on classes that were not exactly what you needed um, in order to create your own classes for uh, SLPs. Um, I'm wondering, just like, did you have support? Did you have, I don't know, a mentor or like, I don't want my question to sound too silly or naive, but like, how did you uh, feel so empowered, you know, like to, to go after this? This is the right thing to do. People need this. Yeah, I wouldn't say I had like a mentor when it comes to content other than maybe like being inspired by books I was reading and stuff like that. You know, one of the lectures in my course for professionals is Dr. Winnie Dunn, who is an occupational therapist, very, very well known. She created one of the most widely used sensory assessments out there called the sensory profile. So I got to like meet with her and get her opinion when I was creating the course, which was amazing. But honestly, it's been through business coaching. You know, I've been doing business coaching since I started my practice. And that's like, the most motivating thing for me in the world. And I think one of the biggest, I don't know if I would say like mistakes people make, but I think a lot of the times when you're creating something new, you tend to look at the other people around you in your space and try to see like, what are they doing? But I think the most success I've always had is when I completely ignore anyone else who's relatively in my space. And I look at people who are successful in other fields and try to figure out what are they doing and how can we do this in our field? You know, because otherwise it tends to be like a lot of the same thing. And this is going to sound cheesy. This is from, um, what was the movie King Richard about Venus and Serena Williams? And they said to Serena when she was young, I think, how how do you expect to win you know there's so much competition and she's like i like literally don't like i i don't remember word for word what she said but the sentiment was like i don't care at all like i'm not watching them i'm in my own lane here you know so it's kind of that mentality of like i think when when you look around and you compare yourself to other people it almost just like distracts you and takes you away but when you are like laser focused on knowing what your goals are and what you want to do, it helps, you know? And for me, I've always said, I want to have a a bigger impact. It's like, I can only help so many kids. If I see 30 kids a week, what, what if instead I helped 30 therapists a week who helped 30 kids a week, you know? And for us, it's always been more about like the creating the ripple in the pond and trying to have a bigger influence by doing the same amount, because I know that you know, we can't work one-on-one with every person in the world. 
So how, how many, do you have an idea of how many SLPs you've trained uh, who have taken your, your training uh, so far? Oh my gosh, I should know this. I mean, I know we have like probably, I would say around a thousand or so or more, I don't know, in that ballpark, maybe more. I really should know this, who have actually taken my full training. But, you know, I've done a lot of trainings for a lot of free trainings online where we'll have thousands of people attend. I mean, I just did a training that was like around 15,000 people. Wow. <laughs> I do a lot of trainings for schools and other organizations as well. And is there a way um, to, you know, like if someone is looking for an SLP in their area in the U.S. to to see who has taken the, the sensory training? We have our directory under construction. It has been quite the project, but um, it's a big priority for us right now to get that finished. So we get a lot of parents asking that. Okay, so soon. Yeah, very soon. <laughs> All right. And so you did not stop there. A few months ago, you launched a class for parents. Did you decide to do that because maybe in the pandemic, uh, right, SLPs had to switch to uh, teleconsultation? And I've seen my son. I know he's not going to sit in front of the computer and talk to anyone. Um, so like you had to switch to a, what, a, um, a parent coaching model. Is, is that how you got that idea or... Not at all. I'm completely off base. Actually, it was more just that that's what people were asking for, you know, because I was putting out all of this. My audience for a long time was just therapists, but then it started to ripple into parents. So then I would post, I'm doing this free training for therapists and we just constantly get parents wanting to go. And to be honest, I was hesitant to start the parent programs because I wanted to make sure parents are getting the level of support they need, you know? Um, and I just felt like parents have so much going on. Are they really going to want to carve out time for this? Or would they rather go to the therapist who has the training and learn there? But the more, you know, we went on and on, we found that parents were not finding the therapist they needed. So it's like they didn't have the support they needed. And that led us to create our parent program, which has been an interesting learning experience because it's definitely an investment for parents. But I think the one thing that we knew when we designed it was that if we were going to train parents, we wanted to make sure to give them the support they needed. We didn't want to just like put the content in front of their faces and say, good luck. You know, so our new version of our parent program, parents get one-on-one -on -one calls every month. They get a support group they get group calls, like they get a lot of support. So that was the big thing for us is just making sure that they were getting the support they needed. And that parent program has like filled this place in my heart I didn't know existed because it was just, <laughs> um, we have a lot of international families too, who say like, because I hear like in the UK, for example, it's very, very hard to find therapists who have this type of training. So it's like, it's really nice to be able to provide that to families who just can't get it anywhere else. That's really amazing. I didn't realize you had um, a, such an international audience. Who would you say has had like, um, who or what has had a strong impact uh, in your life that helps you reach where you are right now or 
I don't know if we can talk about life goals <laughs> or career goals. Uh, is that that boyfriend that got you to LA? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> is that that pre-med prof? Uh, is that I mean, you obviously are a strong-willed uh, um, professional and woman, um, but I'm just wondering, you know, like if you were to like reflect on like who's kind of maybe like planted a seed uh, in you that helps you get to where you are right now. Um, do you have any idea who that would be? So many people, it's hard to even pinpoint because I mean, every coach I've ever had has had a really significant impact on me. And the only reason I've left any of my coaches is to go to the next level coach who helps the next level person with the problems that I was having at the moment, you know, because when you are a solo practitioner, you have way different problems than when you're running a clinic and an online business. But I think also like my partner, Chris, who's a speech pathologist, um, this is just like when we were friends, because we were on a board, the California board together before we ever dated or anything like that. And I remember launching my first program And it wasn't going very well. It was like I just opened the cart. I was so excited. And I barely, I, I don't even know if I'd gotten like one sale in the first one or two days or something. And he sent me a picture of Amazon, like when it was in a room and they had a spray painted sign <laughs> that said Amazon with like, it was like the messiest office. And he said, you know, your remember your chapter one is a lot different than and someone else's chapter one. I don't know, something like that. And it was, you know, just it was very inspiring. So I think that there's been times in my life where I haven't been surrounded by people who necessarily are supportive of all the things I'm doing. So I think having people who support you and believe in you is the absolute best thing you could possibly do for yourself. That's a wonderful conclusion. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Jesse. Um, if people want to uh, find you at, at your website, the one of your clinic, I know you're on Instagram, sensory.slp. And you also have a podcast with Chris, uh, whom you just mentioned, uh, Making the Shift, right? Do you want to tell us a, a few words about that podcast? Yeah, that's been fun. Also interesting um, having a show with your partner, getting it's probably the max we we also speak together so i think that's the max maybe our businesses will ever cross but um it's been really fun where yeah basically we we talk about how to make the shift make the shift for autistic kids to more um neurodiversity affirming practices how we can support sensory and social emotional development that's really what it's a live show that we do every week and then it gets turned into a podcast as well I'll add the link as well in the in the note of this uh, of this episode. Thank you so much, Jesse. Um, it was a pleasure to learn from you and to discover a little more about your story. That's it for Thank me. Thank you so much <laughs> for having me. I appreciate it. And all the best with the end of your pregnancy. Thank you. I know it could be any day. That's it for today. Thank you so very much to Jessie Ginsberg for her participation in this podcast. I also want to take a moment to congratulate her and her partner, as since we recorded a few weeks ago, a little baby boy named Teddy came to the world. Congratulations to the whole family. And thank you to everyone who listened to this podcast up until the end for listening to us, for tuning in. If you'd like to find more episodes on the positive impact one can have on a community of any size, 
please subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening right now. And if you're listening to us on Podcast Addict, Apple Podcasts, or even Spotify, please take a moment to review the podcast, give it five stars, and leave a note. As of a few days ago, you can now leave a few words on Spotify on each episode that you'd like. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.